1: Big guess. the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge, weekdays twelve thirty to three seven seventy CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Brickenridge. On today's episode, Amnesty International Canada wants Alberta to back down from its war room and public inquiry. Also, has the Me Too movement led to a backlash that is now harming women in other ways? Designated travelers, how much is it costing taxpayers to transport MPs, spouses and partners across the country? Plus, World Suicide Prevention Day, the conversations we need to have. Let's talk about what's going on here in Alberta, off the top in this uh, inquiry, public inquiry into foreign funded environmental groups. Now, I might be in the minority here. I I think this all might just kind of end up being a waste of time and money and could end up backfiring on the government in numerous ways. Uh, look, there are certainly environmental groups out there who have been stubborn foes in our attempts to develop uh, oil and gas and build needed infrastructure. Uh, clearly, there have been American groups and foundations that have lent a hand to those efforts. And I think we, we already know a lot about that. I just I, I, I struggle to see what the best case scenario out of this inquiry is going to be beyond maybe some additional embarrassment for some of these groups. I mean, the whole mandate of this inquiry is limited to Alberta. We're not going to be subpoenaing anybody from any uh, American foundation. We're not going to be able to man- demand any records from any of these groups. And, and frankly, violating charitable laws, if-, if that's gone on, I don't know that anybody has alleged that. But any violation of charitable laws, I mean, that- that's federal jurisdiction. So I'm not really sure what we're expecting this inquiry to come up with or sort of what the best case scenario looks like. Worst case scenario as it comes back as as a big nothing burger and ends up being a huge PR boost to these groups and ends up being a big embarrassment to the government. Even the process itself, let's not forget that through this inquiry, these groups are going to have an opportunity uh, to mount a defense, to call witnesses, to cross-examine witnesses. So even, even the process could be a huge PR boost to them. So I see a lot of ways this could go sideways, and I'm not really sure what we're expecting to get out of it. But it is full steam ahead for this inquiry. A website has been launched this week, albertainquiry.ca, allowing the public to, what, send in information? I'm not really sure what we're expecting to get from this either. I mean, I guess if you want to go to the, the website and tell them how much you think Greenpeace sucks, well, okay. How about her? Uh, trending uh, last night on Twitter today was the hashtag report in Alberta. Because this has a little bit of a, a snitch line sniff to all of it. I guess we'll see what comes of this inquiry because it does seem as though it is full steam ahead. But today the group Amnesty International, Amnesty International Canada releasing a letter calling on Premier Kenny uh, to end this inquiry. What they see as human rights concerns regarding Alberta's fight back strategy, what might those human rights concerns be? Anyway, more at amnesty.ca. Joining us on the line is Alex Neve, Canada's Secretary General, or Amnesty International Canada's Secretary General. Alex, thanks for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. All right, so why why is this uh, of concern, this, this whole issue of concern to Amnesty International?
2: Uh, Well, our concern here is that this has really set the, the climate for there to be a very aggressive attack against human rights defenders, environmentalists, Indigenous rights activists, who very legitimately and importantly are seeking to engage in a vital public debate about such issues as Alberta's responsibilities and contribution to fighting the global climate crisis, uh, where um, regard for indigenous land rights fit uh, within the strategies for um, the the uh, the provinces oil and gas industry, et cetera, And doing so through very aggressive language that talks about fighting back the name of the strategy, a war room, uh, which is you know, we're expecting any day now, which is the place from which the the campaign against activists and human rights defenders will be waged. And the public inquiry that is making these uh, these accusations that there is pervasive foreign support of environmental groups, et cetera, and that there is something wrong about that, even something traitorous uh, around that. And it's often all uh, sort of encased in language talking about activists as if they are enemies, uh, that uh, that everything they are putting out there for public debate uh, is lies and defamation. That is all very concerning and it is very reflective of a trend that we're seeing around the world, quite frankly, from a growing number of authoritarian governments who go after civil society groups, environmentalists. Uh, human rights groups in exactly the same way, vilifying them, uh, trying to build this narrative that that they're only telling lies, uh, and going after this idea that that they're all receiving huge amounts of support from outside the, the country or the province in this case, and that that somehow only amplifies this sense that they're betraying the country and and are traitorous. And all of that is putting activists at risk.
1: Well, Alex, I'm not going to deny that there's been over-the-top rhetoric, but it it seems uh, like a pretty myopic focus to only focus on the uh, -the over-the-top rhetoric from one side. Uh, Certainly the groups that are campaigning against Alberta, Alberta's oil sands, I think themselves are guilty of some pretty over-the-top rhetoric that these politicians are trying to destroy the planet, they're in the pocket of big oil, uh, that this is a, a carbon bomb, that threatens existence. I mean, there's all kinds of over-the-top rhetoric to go around on all sides of this debate. It seems pretty selective to, to pick and choose from one side here
2: well i think there 's a big difference between one side being a government and the state and and the other side being civil society and activists and human rights defenders we 're not at all talking about an even playing field and we 're not talking about uh, the the same sense of legal responsibilities and obligations. Amnesty is not at all suggesting that the the government of alberta uh shouldn't uh, promote its views shouldn't engage vigorously uh in debate uh but we are very concerned uh when the tactics strategies processes used um, further this narrative that that activists are liars that activists uh are traitors and enemies um and are and are very worried in particular because that's a trend we see right around the world which is increasingly In 2019, putting human rights defenders and activists at greater risk everywhere in every corner of our world uh, than they have been for many, many years.
1: Okay, but we should also be careful in our language, too. I'm not aware that the premier or anybody in government has called any any Canadian activist uh, a traitor. So I'm I'm not sure where, where you're setting that example from.
2: Uh, there certainly has been frequent use of the word enemies, um, and of course, uh, we start to get into a slippery slope of what comes out of the voice of a politician, the premier, or a minister, or anyone else, and what then is picked up on social media by uh, by groups that sort of parrot and and are are fueled and encouraged uh, by politicians. Uh, that 's why it's so crucial that that leaders and 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 the premier in particular being you know the top leader in the province sets uh a high bar uh, for what the the nature and tenor of this debate should be about and really scrupulously avoid uh, using language such as, as liars and enemies uh, and, and instead of setting a framework that's all about fighting and waging war uh, against human rights defenders and activists, set a framework that is, that is about all of us mutually embracing those very important human rights obligations and responsibilities and looking for the strategies that get us down that road together.
1: Well, I, I mean, okay, maybe we're, we're splitting hairs over terminology here. I mean, uh, I think a lot of Albertans see this as a struggle, that there is a fight underway, that there are those who are, are trying to, to block this industry at every turn, shut down this industry. Uh, and, and there's, there's a desire to push back. I mean, we could call it a struggle. We could call it an effort. We could call it a fight. I mean, uh, it, it seems at this point, you know, we're becoming a little pedantic around language, aren't we?
2: I don't think we are. We're not being pedantic when we know, uh, right around the world and in Canada, including what we've seen in recent months with respect to, to the kinds of online threats that have uh, been made against activists and, and human rights defenders, Indigenous women activists, etc., violent threats, etc. I'm not suggesting any of that's coming from the government, but it, but it's all provoked once this this climate and this environment is unleashed. That's why it's not pedantic or splitting hairs to be concerned about language. Um, and, and, And this is building on Amnesty International's experience right around the world. We've seen everywhere how much of a difference words matter, how much of a difference tone matters, and how crucial it is that governments live up to their human rights responsibilities to use the right words and set the right tone, recognizing that there will be others who go far beyond uh, what government uh, says. And, and that's why this is not at all something of minimal concern.
1: Okay, well, let me give you an example, because as I mentioned at the outset, uh, you know, the, the writ is going to drop tomorrow, we'll officially be in, into a federal election campaign. Each and every party is going to have what is referred to as a war room. Uh, and, And that's a common political term for kind of a center of operation when it comes to getting your message out. The Alberta government did not invent the term war room, and it's used quite commonly in politics. In your letter, though, you're singling out Alberta for its use of a term that is used frequently in Canadian politics
2: we're not suggesting that the term war room should never be used by politicians in any context our concern is the context in which it's being used here a war room that isn't the sort of command control center for an election campaign uh, but a war room that is uh, very definitely and and explicitly about uh, going after the environmentalists and others who are raising concerns or even expressing outright opposition to the oil and gas industry uh, and waging a war there. Uh, that's, that's different from the context of, you know, let's coordinate and get our, our campaign for the upcoming federal election finally tuned and, and running out on time. Uh, this is really sending a message that this is war on activists uh and while you know one of course is suggesting that that literally means war on activists it sets a tone uh and in the world in which we uh live in 2019 uh, the ways in which tone gets amplified and goes toxic and leads to threats including threats of violence uh in social media and other ways that matters
1: okay so what then specifically are you you calling on the alberta government to do here
2: Uh, We want them to back away uh, from from this this rhetoric and 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 very harsh hyperbole about fighting and wars and enemies, uh, and and really take an opportunity to regroup and reconsider, uh, and to put the provinces clear human rights responsibilities, human rights responsibilities to uphold and protect the space for human rights defenders, human rights responsibilities to vigorously tend um, protect rights around freedom of expression and freedom of association. To be very attentive to the rights of Indigenous peoples and the reconciliation agenda, and to recognize that there's a very pressing human rights agenda, which yesterday at the UN, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, called the most uh, uh, major uh, human rights crisis the world faces, and that is the global climate crisis, and we need a strategy uh, and there's nothing wrong about the word strategy. It's the concern about fighting back strategy uh, that we've highlighted here. We need a strategy that is that is embracing all of those human rights considerations and then looking for the way forward here.
1: Okay, but I, I, what are the human rights considerations? I, I think this is maybe where I'm, I'm struggling to see that. Uh,
2: well, the human rights considerations are making sure that it's safe. Uh, to be a human rights defender uh, in this province. The human rights considerations are making sure that the government is not setting a frame within which there's a chill on freedom of spree- speech and freedom of association because of concerns that if you raise concerns about the oil and gas industry, you'll be targeted, uh, you'll, be, you'll be criticized, you'll be vilified uh, for doing so by the government or supporters. Uh, the human rights concerns are to make sure that there is an absolutely robust agenda in place that recognizes that we have a global climate crisis that has huge human rights implications, that Alberta is very much uh, responsible for its part of that not solely but obviously as a significant player uh, and and efforts that are instead about intimidating and silencing voices of criticism and concern about the oil and gas industry do not at all take us in the right human rights direction when it comes to fighting climate okay.
1: change. well to me it, it sounds a little bit then like you're, you're like you're siding with with one side of this debate I mean to refer to environmental groups as human rights defenders uh, that that suggests a, a bit of a bias on, on amnesty's part am, am i wrong uh,
2: we are not taking a side other than the side for human rights uh, and and yes, environmentalists uh are, not every aspect of what an environmentalist does is is about defending human rights, but we have long ago moved to a place where governments have recognized that environmental protections and human rights protections are very much intertwined and are very often one and the same, that the right to a healthy environment is at the very core of very many of our most essential human rights. Okay, but does Amnesty um,
1: believe that, that building pipelines threatens human rights? Does Amnesty International have a position on the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project?
2: Uh, We do point to that being a very concern. We have not come out publicly ourselves and said abandon the the Trans Mountain expansion. Uh, But we certainly think the space uh, within which organizations raise that concern and do so, including by highlighting the human rights implications of of pipeline expansion, expansion, um, absolutely is something that needs to be protected by governments, not shut down.
1: All right, more Amnesty.ca. Alex, appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for this.
2: All right, thanks for the conversation. All right,
1: I'm just, uh, or Alex, Alex Neve is Amnesty International, Canada's Secretary General, Amnesty.ca. Um, okay, nine <laughs> seven Let's take a break here. You know, like I said at the outset, I'm, I'm not necessarily on board with this inquiry, Uh, But the idea that the Alberta government, just by having the inquiry, is somehow threatening human rights, uh, to me, that's a stretch, to put it mildly. And if we're concerned about language, and maybe we should be, but that cuts both ways. When Sapporo Berman says, Canada, it's time to warrior up and stop Trans Mountain, what does that mean? Maybe both sides should watch the rhetoric, but it's hypocritical, I think, to only denounce one side of this debate. Well, we've heard a lot about the Me Too movement over the last year or two Uh, and and the importance, I think, of of having a a situation, having a culture uh, where victims uh, of sexual assault or sexual harassment feel as though they can come forward, feel as though that they're going to be listened to, feel as though that there is going to be consequences for those that abused or assaulted them. Holding powerful people accountable is clearly something that hasn't happened in the past and does need to happen in the future. So is this Me Too movement brought about that kind of meaningful change? Well, it's a hard question to, to quantify. How do, how do we measure that? Well, there was one survey recently that, that attempted to do that. And I think it, it raises some questions about the impact of the Me Too movement and whether there's been kind of an unintended backlash Here's the story from uh, Global News today. For some, there was a hope that publicity and solidarity might encourage more women to speak up and more men to be less inappropriate. At least that's what a University of Houston management professor's early Me Too survey results revealed. The latest survey from Professor Leanne Outwater and other researchers teased in this month's Harvard Business Journal puts a spotlight on how men have responded to women publicly sharing their sexual harassment and the backlash women face as a result. What they found, for example, is that one-fifth of men were reluctant to hire attractive women. Well, slightly more expressed reluctance about hiring women for roles that require close interactions with men. So what do we make of these findings? Joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Leanne Atwater, professor of management at the University of Houston, lead researcher on this uh, important new survey. Uh, professor Atwater, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, tell us a bit
1: more, then, I guess, about what, what it was you were trying to answer uh, through this study.
3: Well, it seemed in the beginning, um, shortly after Me Too, the Me Too movement got on, that mostly the women were, you know, throwing their hands in the air and saying, finally, we've, you know, we're going to get justice and this is all going to stop. And, you know, we've found solidarity, as you mentioned, Um but it didn't seem like it was all going to, I was worried, my colleagues and I were worried that whenever there's a movement like this that disrupts the status quo, particularly when it's somewhat threatening to those in power, so the civil rights movement is an example, um, there's typically some backlash that it isn't just as, you know, wow, what a solution we've solved this problem. Um, we were worried that there may be some behaviors that did not bode well for women um, as a result of this. And so, our first survey we did shortly after the Me Too movement was launched, and that was published in Organizational Dynamics. And this most recent one we did about a year after, um, the first survey we asked people, what do you think is going to happen as a result of the Me Too movement? and there were clearly some positive expectations, um, that women would be more likely to speak up, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there were also some fears that women might um, be excluded. Uh, a way to solve the problem of sexual harassment is just not to put men and women together. Right. So our second survey asked people what was actually happening in the workplace. And sadly, the realization of what was happening was more negative than what people anticipated um so as you mentioned men and women reporting reluctance to hire women for jobs that require men and women to interact together um reluctance to be alone with women um reluctance to hire attractive women and you know all of this is against at least it's against the u.s civil rights act that says you cannot discriminate on the basis of gender and if you're selecting out women for a variety of workplace activities on the basis of gender, you're not only doing a great disservice to women and men, but you're violating the law. Right. Um, But what
1: what does it tell us, though, about, you know, the fears that exist? Because I don't I wouldn't think uh, that someone who's not hiring a woman is is afraid that they are going to then harass that woman but it's it's is it a fear it's a fear of being accused i guess falsely accused
3: well men you know the proportion of men that was roughly 45 percent of men said that they had greater fears of being um unfairly accused right so rather than take a chance on being unfairly accused or having someone else in your organization be unfairly accused we just won't give them the opportunity we'll just keep women and men apart and then there won't be any harassment that we have to worry about Um, sadly that isn't real great for women's career opportunities what happens to you know if if i can't be alone with a woman as a man if i can't be alone with a woman how am i going to mentor her um one one of the individuals that commented on our paper in hbr said that they have now decided that men and women cannot drive in cars together that they must drive separately um so how does the social networking work for women if they're being excluded from social activities they're not being hired they're not being allowed to be in a car or go on a job um, trip with another man those are have some severe ramifications that are not good Right. So, so what
1: do we do at this point? Because, you know, the issues around harassment that were coming to light are very legitimate issues. But if there's now this, this fear that's becoming ingrained, I mean, that, that's going to be hard to undo.
3: Well, I mean, clearly we have to make managers and HR managers aware that some of this is going on. Um, our surveys were anonymous, and so people were willing to say that they were doing these things. I don't imagine that they would tell you that face-to-face. And perhaps it's even more severe than we under you know than than we think because maybe some people didn't admit that these were some of their intentions. Um, but we've got to make managers aware that some of this is going on, so that they can put policies and safeguards in place that don't allow it to happen. Um, we've got to you know we've got to make women aware. And interestingly, I, I must point out that one of the issues that gets brought up is that, oh, well, women, you know, so many women, they see everything as sexual harassment. I have no idea, man, you know, what they're going to interpret poorly. And we surveyed people about what is sexual harassment in your mind and how severe are a variety of behaviors. And the men and women agreed completely. Um, They both saw the same behaviors, the same degree of severity. And if anything, the women were more lenient in terms of, for example, oh, if someone tells you you look nice, is that harassment? The men were a little more likely to say, yes, it might be seen as harassment than the women. So men are not unaware of what these behaviors are, and women are not overly sensitive in general. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So that's not the solution. The solution is not understanding what sexual harassment is. It's not engaging in it and not excluding women as a solution to it.
1: Right. Now, it's, it's interesting, too, because your surveys have indicated, uh, you know, some, some evidence around the question of how widespread harassment is. I mean, how big a problem is it?
3: You know, there are a whole lot of surveys out there. From what I've seen in our data, the estimates range from 30 percent to over 60 percent of women say they have been harassed in their careers. Um, interestingly, 5 percent of men say they have done any harassment so either there's a lot of women getting harassed by the same men or the men are in denial about what's going on um or what they're you know how they behaved and how it was perceived so i don't know if that answered your question
1: right well i mean yeah it it illustrates that obviously we are still dealing with a problem that the me too movement hasn't made hasn't brought about an end to harassment. I mean, that, that, that remains an issue.
3: Sure. And even in our survey, we asked people, you know, to what extent do you think powerful men will continue to engage in harassment? And around 70% of them said that they believed powerful men would continue to engage in harassment. Um, you know, there will be probably more care taken to getting caught. But there was also some optimism that this was really going to give women um, more Comfort in voicing that this is going on and giving men more comfort in voicing that it's going on. That harassment, you know, may decline as a result of all of this attention being given to it. So declining harassment is a definite positive outcome of this. We just can't lose sight of some of the negative ramifications that may also be occurring um, that are going to set women back in their careers.
1: Yeah, some important points. Uh, well, pe- uh, people can read more. The Harvard uh, Business Review, hbr.org. More on uh, your findings in, in the latest edition of the Harvard Business Review. Professor Atwater, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate this.
3: My pleasure.
1: All right. Uh, that is Dr. Leanne Atwater, professor of management, University of Houston, lead researcher on this study that indicates that there has been this kind of a backlash or maybe an unintended consequence of the Me Too movement that, that hurts women in a different way by limiting their their career advancement opportunities or career opportunities in the first place. So as you've been hearing today, the uh, prime minister will officially commence the uh, federal election campaign tomorrow. We'll uh, make the uh, traditional visit to the governor general, drop the proverbial writ, and we'll be off and running. Uh, so the campaign will officially kick off tomorrow. Election Day, which you already knew, is October 21st. And don't forget, as mentioned, uh, tomorrow morning from 8 to 9.30, Donna Friesen will be hosting, uh, hosting an election special, Decision Canada, uh, as we mark the official beginning of the campaign. As we get set to head into the campaign, we got some new numbers of this week regarding the amounts of taxpayer subsidized travel that politicians have been doing across the country over the last four years. Four point five million dollars worth. Joining us to talk more about this is Amanda Connolly, a reporter with Global News. Amanda, thanks for making some time for us. here. welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, now, this required a lot of digging uh, on your part. This is data that comes from the members' expenditure reports. So how, how did we uh, get down to this total of $4.5 million?
4: So as you mentioned, this took quite a lot of digging on our part. Uh, what we did was we, we went through uh, through those public expenditure reports, basically digging uh, digging up all of the detail around what we call designated travelers. And these are individuals who MPs are allowed to basically share their travel allowance with. And that allows this individual who's oftentimes a, a spouse, a relative, or things like that, to travel on the taxpayer dime if they're doing things like um, being reunited with the, the MP if their family or um, going to events with them and, and that sort of stuff. And so what we did was kind of go through there and, and rank those, uh, those claims for spousal or partner travel by MPs and really try and get a sense of who was claiming the most and why that might be the case.
1: Right. Now, yeah, again, obviously, members of parliament have to do a lot of traveling. Their job requires that. But to the question of whether and when they can bring their spouses along, that becomes a, a different kind of question. So, are, are there pretty c- clear rules around the circumstances under which designated travelers are acceptable?
4: So, there, there are some rules here. They're not, uh, there, there are certainly questions as well that, that remain a little bit unclear here. Generally, what happens is in cases where an MP. He is, or sorry, a, a disposal traveler is. Um, traveling from the riding to Ottawa, for example, to be reunited with the MP, that's an example of something that would be covered. And so you do see the overwhelming majority of these claims being travel back and forth between an MP's riding and Ottawa, where of course they they do their work in in the House of Commons. We also see claims for travel between the riding and other Canadian cities. So for example, if an MP has to travel to an event and their spouse comes with them from the riding, that's also an example of something that would be covered. We know that MPs get their travel reimbursed as while for uh, trips back and forth to uh, New York, uh, New York City and Washington, D.C. Those those are not covered for the spouses of MPs. Uh, They are only traveling within Canada with the MP or to be reunited with the MP.
1: Uh, It's interesting because the the six members of Parliament who claim the most all happen to be in in Western Canada. In fact, five of the six in B.C., one from Alberta. Obviously, uh, you know, the further you get. From Ottawa, the the more it's going to cost to travel. What's the link then between you know where these MPs are are from and and what these travel costs are?
4: So what we saw was that the the top six claimants for this disposal travel expense were, as as you mentioned, all from western Canada, um and they they were all individuals who are claiming over one hundred thousand dollars for travel expenses for their designated traveler. And so when we went down through that, we saw that all of those uh, all of those top six, were conservative MPs except for Jody Wilson-Raybould. She's the former liberal attorney general, now an independent candidate for Vancouver Granville. And the question there that really emerged for us was looking at the the discrepancy between what she was claiming, which was $125,000 in travel expenses for her husband, and kind of contrasting that with the MPs who were in the top category, but who also came from very rural and remote riding. So, for example, Todd Doherty, a Conservative MP for Northern BC, was one. he was the top claimer with about $145,000 in travel claims for his wife. And looking at those numbers and saying, well, she's not from a, a rural or remote riding, although she is from Western Canada, but other MPs who are from the Vancouver area, too, were claiming far less.
1: What's also interesting too, I mean, four point five million dollars seems like a lot of money, but I guess you know the good news is here that if we look back in recent years, uh, the numbers, the overall numbers have, have held fairly steady. It appears.
4: That's certainly the indication that we got. So going through year by year, when you break down that 4.5 million, it really does kind of balance out with what we've uh, within a range that uh, we've come to see over over previous years. So generally per year, you're looking at around you know 1.2 to 1.5 million dollars per year for these spousal travel expenses, and that's been consistent going right the way back to roughly 2012, 2013. Um, so, it kind of throughout to two different governments here, we've seen this this um, level of spending be consistent. And kind of one of the things that we also looked at here was um, breaking da- breaking it down by by area. And so, of course, MPs have this option for special travel. They also have the use the option of using uh, Via Rail, which gives free. Travel to MPs and their families, uh, whether the the families are traveling with the MP or not, and so for individuals whose ridings were located around the what we call the the Quebec Windsor corridor, so that kind of big popular uh, transit route that VIA Rail operates here in Ontario and in Quebec, um, and what we found was that cabinet ministers who lived around, who represented ridings along that uh, that route were also claiming tens of, of dollar tens of thousands of dollars in expenses for their spouses, and so. That was a question that we put to them, was why were they using this taxpayer option when mm-hmm. they had the option for free travel as well?
1: Yeah, and I guess the other point that's come up in all of this is is whether, when it comes to, to spouses traveling on, on the taxpayer dime, whether there should be um, uh, a prohibition on using business class.
4: Yeah. So the way that the rules work right now is that the flight is over two hours in length. They are allowed to fly business class, and so that really is one of the the, the questions that I think is emerging from this. Um, I did speak with with someone from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation yesterday or earlier before the story came out. And they were saying that they they understand that there are costs associated with having MPs come from across the country with trying to limit the impact of their job on their family life and their relationships. But at the same time, as you mentioned, uh, business class is one of those things that maybe would be good to look at in terms of not having uh, family members who are unelected going in business class on the taxpayer dime.
1: Very interesting. More details at globalnews.ca. Amanda, thanks so much for this. Appreciate
4: it. Thank you.
1: All right. That's uh, Amanda Connolly, reporter with Global News. Global News. Uh, so designated travelers uh, from the House of Commons members' allowances and services manual. MPs can pick one person with whom to share free travel allowances. This includes taxpayer-funded trips between their ridings in Ottawa and other Canadian cities for parliamentary business. Designated travelers travel for free if representing the MP in an event or to reunite the MP with family. That free travel also includes business class on flights over two hours. Now, the last point is what she was just referring to there in the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, saying, well, it's good that the numbers aren't increasing in terms of how much we're spending each year. We could still get these costs in line a little bit more and having an economy class rule might be a good one to have unless there are extenuating circumstances. I okay, understand for, for politicians, you know, the, the sacrifice uh, with regard to your family life, is a lot to ask, especially the further you go away from Ottawa. Some people from Alberta, B.C., You know, it's a long distance to travel to Ottawa. You're away a lot of the time. Uh, And, you know, people may hesitate about being members of parliament because you're going to be away from your family and be away from your spouse for long periods of time. Uh, So opportunities where, you know, you can ensure that relationship is being looked after. It's it's not completely unreasonable. I think people do sympathize at some at some level. This is one of those issues where you don't want to discourage good people uh, from being in politics and you know i think more or less we see people who put priority on family as as the kind of people we want in politics recognizing it's a sacrifice and recognizing that to a limited extent we can try to help alleviate that so long as it's it's not being abused an important but difficult conversation uh, and, and perhaps by it being World Suicide Prevention Day, it gives us the opportunity to have this conversation. According to the uh, a new report from the World Health Organization, one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds. Report reveals that more people die by suicide than in war every year. And the World Health Organization has urged governments to adopt suicide prevention plans to help people cope with stress and reduce access to suicide means. They say it is a global public health issue. So how do we address it? And how does having a conversation help get us to a path where we're preventing this? Well, joining us for some thoughts on all this, very pleased to welcome in the program, Mara Grenau, Executive Director of the Center for Suicide Prevention here in Calgary. Mara, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the program.
0: Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for having me on.
1: You know, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like we have a day for, for everything, and then maybe it seems to some people a little gimmicky, but I mean, is there, does it present an opportunity to, to address some really important issues?
0: Yes. You nailed, the, you nailed it right on the head. Uh, it does feel gimmicky. We have a day for everything. But when it's a difficult topic and not one that is naturally broached in conversation, having a day gives us an excuse to drive the conversation to the issue.
1: Where does that conversation need to start? What does the focus need to be?
0: Well, I think if, you know, if everyone was really honest with each other, it would be difficult to find somebody who wasn't connected to somebody who died by suicide. We've all experienced suicide in one way, shape, or form, and some of us more directly than others. And yet we feel so terribly alone. It's so stigmatizing that we aren't readily bringing it to the surface and other people near us may be suffering with the same loss or with thoughts ourselves and yet because we're unwilling to talk about it we suffer alone and people often suffer alone and die alone
1: right there's there's stigmas that exist around what what are those stigmas
0: Oh, probably the biggest one in suicide prevention is that it's all in your head and you should be able to fix it. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: And
0: that kind of goes to just general mental health uh, overall, right? Oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Why are you lounging around? Get up and get out and do something. Oh, you're depressed? Go for a run. Well, truth is exercise does contribute to mental well-being. But when you're at the pit of depression, getting yourself out to exercise is like an you know feels like an unsurmountable task it's it's really hard
3: mm-hmm.
1: well and right and and I mean we're talking about I guess a symptom or a manifestation of mm-hmm. of something that's happening something that people are going through and, and, and it means understanding what those those root causes are those issues are
0: right exactly and no two people's experiences is the same and so it's really important to be non-judgmental open and receptive so that people feel that they can come and talk to you
1: uh, is is it always linked to to mental health i mean clearly there's a link between depression and, and suicide but is, is it always the case
0: it's an interesting question and you'll find researchers on both sides of that debate typically the canadian mental health association of which we are a part will say uh, around 90%, percent nine zero percent of people who die by suicide are experiencing a mental health crisis of some sort. Um, of course, that includes depression, which is the vast majority of that number. Um, but recently in the States, about a year, just over a year ago, the CDC released a report saying that that number is much lower. Part of it depends how you classify different health concerns, I suppose. But the truth is, When somebody is in suicidal crisis, their vision becomes tunneled. They feel excruciating psychological pain. And what they're trying to do is get out of the pain. They want the pain of living to end. But they don't want to die. And so a well-timed intervention can make all the difference. If you can show the person that there is another way out of their pain they'll take it because death isn't what they're out or what they're after. They want out of the pain.
1: That's a really important point. I think because maybe there's an assumption that once someone gets to that point, that's all they want. They they don't want to live anymore. They do want to die. But as you say, they, they really fundamentally deep down don't.
0: Exactly. Suicide is not inevitable. We get that question a lot. If someone has really set their mind to it, will it happen? Well, yes if nobody stops them but we have to remember that they're not thinking clearly at that time Uh, research is fairly uh conclusive on that that their vision has become so tunneled um, that they can't see other options
1: what should people be watching for then i mean you know just because someone might be struggling does not necessarily mean they're they're suicidal but are there particular signs that that people really need to be watching for
0: Yes, there are. I mean, everyone is unique, and so it's difficult to, you know give a checklist. but there are some general trends to watch for. Uh, a significant change in behavior probably tops the list. If you see somebody where they've they really have had a big delta, so we're not talking little things, but you know they they're usually outgoing and and sociable, and now they're moody and withdrawn. That's not great. Increase in substance use. Mm -hmm. Now, some people consume substances recreationally or they drink quite a lot. That isn't the sign. It's the change, right? So if you go from this level to that level, you're looking for the change. If they're not kind of keeping up with their appearance, if they start giving away their prized possessions, if they make kind of, you know, self-deprecating comments like, oh, you'd be better off without me or I don't have long for this anyways, Those are cues, those are invitations to say, hey, like, what do you mean by that? People don't say those things lightly. Uh, They don't joke like that. So when they say a sentence like that, that's an opportunity to jump in. If you're concerned about somebody, um, the best thing to do is tell them exactly why you're concerned. You know, you're not yourself these days. I've noticed, and then fill in the blank, as specifically as you can. I've noticed that, you know, you're far more withdrawn than you used to be. We ask you to come out and you don't come out. What's going on for you?
1: Yeah.
0: And allow them to talk.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously, it's a difficult conversation to, be ha- to have in the first place. I wonder if people almost worry, too, about it becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or once you address the topic of suicide, you put that idea in, in the person's head. I think at times even people are afraid of bringing it up.
0: You're so right. People are afraid. But let me tell you that research says the exact opposite. You cannot put that idea in somebody's head. If it's there, they'll tell you. If it's not there, they'll tell you. So if you say, you know, sometimes when people are at this point, they consider suicide. Are you considering suicide? Which I say it very easily to you, but it's a very, very difficult conversation to have. But if you can say that word, it takes the burden off of the other person. And all they have to say is yes or no. And if they say yes, don't panic. Together, call the distress center, dial 211, and the distress center will answer your call day or night, and they will navigate what to do next for you. You don't have to have that in your head. Don't try and solve the person's problems. Their problems might seem trite to you. But that's not the point. To them, it's life and death. Just listen. Mm -hmm. Also, even if their problems seem really big and you can't come up with a solution, that's fine. You can't come up with a solution. It is most likely much bigger than you. And just let it be and just listen because that's what your role is.
1: Well, it's interesting. I had a text from somebody, and I suppose a lot of people will be in this, this same boat, says, I've had two friends commit suicide, but one in particular, I blame myself for ignoring the signs 25 years later. It's really tough for people to deal with the loss of a loved one like this and wondering you know, what, what you could have done differently. I mean, what do you say to people in that situation?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to affirm that person who's texted in to say there is no grief like suicide grief. Nothing brings us to a point of blaming and shaming and guilting and, you know, over and over in our heads uh, and with each other than suicide. Um, It is not your fault. So a few things there. One, when the person's very close to us, those changes in behavior can be difficult to detect because... It's sort of like the frog in the pot. You're in the pot too. And so when the changes are so slow moving, we often can't see them. So we rely on that larger network of people around us to reflect to us what they see. And that kind of comes back to your original questions around the stigma. We don't ever want to talk about it. We, you know, Canadians, we're we're very polite. We don't ever want to get into other people's business. But we actually kind of need to a little bit just so that, each other, so that we create a social safety net for each other. The other thing is that sometimes, as the loved one, we do all we can to help our person who is at risk of suicide, and they still die. It is still not your fault. It is not your fault. At the Canadian Mental Health Association, we say everyone can recover from mental illness and everyone can recover from suicidal crisis mm-hmm with the right supports in place for some people all they need is one intervention they need one person to look them in the eye and say you matter and they'll never get to a point of suicidal crisis again for other people they ride this wave of in and out of suicidal thoughts and feelings sometimes for the long term and they need a very different level of support and care more than just something that a friend can do so it takes everybody to help when it comes to suicide
1: well said now in terms of whether we're making progress there there seems to be a more more of a willingness these days to to talk about these issues but how do we measure whether we're making any progress on this
0: really that's a really good question because people immediately want to jump to the rate oh is the rate coming down Well, first of all, the numbers are underreported as they are, so we don't have a great baseline to start from, let alone a way, a mechanism of measuring uh, if it's coming down. So we need to look for other kinds of measures to see uh, the impact of our work. One is the level of stigma. Are more people willing to have the conversation? Are more people seeking information? Are more people calling the crisis line? are more people turning up at the emergency room uh, with at risk of suicide. Now, we don't advocate for people to go to the emergency room unless they're really in a crisis because it's for emergencies. And there are many other places to call for support with thoughts and feelings of suicide like the distress center. But when we see an increase at all of these community resources, that means more people are seeking help, which means... Fewer people at that moment are dying. So these are all different ways that we say that we can measure the impact of the work that's going on.
1: Yeah, very important. Well, you mentioned the Distress Centre. Their number is 266-HELP. If people need uh, information more as well, suicideinfo.ca, also crisisservicescanada.ca. Uh, Mara, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate the conversation.
0: Rob, thanks so much for reaching out. We really value our media partners who are willing to have open thoughtful conversations about suicide. Thank you.
1: Thanks again, Mara. Mara Grinnell is executive director of the Center for Suicide Prevention here in Calgary. Their website is suicideinfo.ca. If you or anyone you know uh, is struggling, is in crisis, again, that 24-hour distress center crisis line, 403-266-HELP, 266-4357.